the book of Isaiah is a massive 66 chapters. And these are not just short chapters. These are big, big chapters. So huge book. And it stands as the centerpiece of the Old Testament. And I suspect that Isaiah may be the great hidden treasure of our Bibles today. And it's not that we don't know of its, of its existence, but we might not appreciate its worth. And the reason that we might not do that is because it's quite a difficult book. It's not the easiest book to get to grips with. I remember 20 years ago uh, when I was at university. That's a long time ago. It literally was 20 years ago. I'm depressed now. But being, we, I had a module on the book of Isaiah and being utterly, utterly amazed by this book because it really, it, it's a difficult book, but it is wonderful. And as you delve into it, you begin to see some just amazing things. And there are some barriers that make it hard to engage with. It was written nearly 2,700 years ago. It was written 600 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene in an, in an ancient Near East culture. And it's largely written in the genre of Hebrew poetry. And it handles some pretty weighty themes. There are some big topics running through it. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And I think that's a good starting point. If you're like, what's the book of Isaiah about? The Lord saves. And the core themes of Isaiah are judgment and redemption, or judgment and hope. Another way of looking at it, and I'm going to be looking at it throughout uh, this evening, is of darkness and light. Because God is pretty hacked off with his people. He, they have turned away. They've worshipped other gods. And Isaiah's been sent into this context to prophesy. Now, when we're talking about a prophet, we're talking about somebody who's often not that popular. <laughs> because they're bringing God's word and they're saying, turn back, turn back to God. Turn away from your sin. You're moving in the wrong direction. Turn away from your wickedness. And so as you can imagine... Originally, Isaiah might not have, might have been doing all right, but as time went on, he, there was a, he probably prophesied for a period of about 60 years, four different kings. The beginning of Isaiah talks about that. Um, but it was a hard job being a prophet. And it talks, there's, a, there's an amazing passage in Isaiah 6. Um, and at the end of it, and it says, you're, you're going to go to a people that are never going to listen to you. And whom shall I send and who will go? And it's often used as kind of one of those stirring speeches for the church, and we're like, here I am, send me. And then God goes on to say, and you will prophesy to a people who would never listen to you. We're like, we don't read that bit afterwards. We've kind of stopped at verse eight. It's a hard job that Isaiah had. And that God will punish his people, but he will also rescue them. And I think Isaiah's been called the fifth gospel. And I think it's a fitting title for the New Testament's use of the word gospel. It's largely rooted in Isaiah's own use of it. And it's really, it's good news. It's good news that although God's people have messed up royally, and they have worshipped other gods, and they rightly deserve judgment, that God will come as their king, and he's going to bring peace and salvation to all who trust him. So Isaiah is a prophetic book, written 600 years before Jesus is coming. And through passage after passage after passage, Isaiah tells of this servant king that's going to come. And this would have been so radical for the people at the time, because you often don't put the, now we think of Jesus and we go, oh, he was the servant king. But in this context, when you were thinking about a king, generally you were thinking about somebody all-powerful who would come in and crush everybody. 
That was what they were thinking about of, of, of as a king. But it's actually talking about this servant king who would come and would serve and would serve the people and would eventually die for the people on the cross. But this would have been this radical idea. So really at the heart of it, this book shows us Jesus. And the book of Isaiah has this forward tilt. It points us to the coming of Jesus Christ and the glorious future that he opens up for us as well. He shows that the gospel is not just about personal forgiveness. It is about personal forgiveness, but it's also about cosmic renewal. It's something so much bigger. And the danger is sometimes we reduce it down and we make it all about us. And suddenly it's like, oh, it's just about me and Jesus. Do you know what? There is a big story that is so much bigger than each one of us. That's so much bigger than this room going on. It's talking about the restoration of all things. And we see that picture as we move through into the end of Isaiah, the end of the book, we begin to see this picture of what God wants to do with the world. God will not only redeem sinners, but he will also restore the world. That one day, there's going to be a new creation with no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness or death. And it's going to be like a jubilant wedding feast, which people for every nation will swallow up a feast of rich food, and the Lord will swallow up death forever. He's going to swallow up death forever. What a phrase. Our future is a joyful feast in God's presence. And Isaiah is also uniquely suited to help us get our bearings on the whole Bible. The deeper we go with Isaiah, the deeper we find we've gone with the rest of Scripture. And, and as it stands as a towering mountain on the biblical landscape. And I, I found a really helpful way of thinking of it is this. If you imagine kind of the sweep of Scripture, and you've got all these little peaks. And as you come through the Old Testament, and what happens is you hit this massive mountain in the middle. It could be the mountain of Isaiah. And as you go up that mountain, what happens is you begin to get this brilliant view back into the Old Testament, and then this sweep forwards into the New Testament. So it gives you a vantage point, because it's going backwards, and it's going forwards, because it's prophesying what is to come, what's next to come. So Isaiah looks back to the first exodus, and then he moves forwards to the new exodus, backward to the first creation, forward to a new creation, backward to the first Jerusalem, forward to a new Jerusalem, backward to the first Davidic king, and forward to a new Davidic king, which is Jesus. Can you see, so backwards and forwards, it keeps going. Several hundred years later, Jesus arrived to bring Isaiah's, Isaiah's promises to fulfillment. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 40 times. So like it takes this book and it keeps quoting it, and it alludes to it, countless others. Scratch any page of the New Testament, and Isaiah will be found underneath. It's like the platform book. Over the next three weeks, we are going to take three passages that prophesy Jesus. So again, and I keep hammering this, it's written 600 years before Jesus. But as you begin to look at the scripture, you're like, oh my goodness, that is who Jesus is. And you can look at it and go, that is so powerful. Before I dive into the passage, I want to give you a little image that hopefully will help you throughout this talk. I don't know whether any of you have ever been potholing. No, none of you. 27 years ago, I went potholing. I was 13, and I have never been potholing since because I was so traumatized and I need some prayer. And this is really just a bit of a therapy session with you lot. There were three caves that I remember going into. The first was called the squeeze. It was exactly what it said on the tin. I should have kind of recognized at this point. The problem was I followed somebody who was slightly larger than myself who kind of got stuck in said cave. 
and you try going backwards through a cave. So this cave that probably should have taken about 10 minutes, I think I was in for about two hours. It's like, oh, so that's my first experience. The second one was even more traumatic. They take you right into the cave and it's freezing cold, the water, because it's not had any sunlight on it. And they say, in order to get from one cave to another, you've got to swim under to get into the next cave. The palpitations as I think about it, I can still think about it. But anyway, the point, the reason why I'm telling you this story is the further that you go into a cave, what you'll become aware of is the extreme darkness. Suddenly you get rid of all natural light and you reach the point and it becomes quite oppressive and it becomes quite terrifying as you journey into this cave to the point where you're like, there is no natural light anywhere. It's, it's really scary. But there's this amazing moment that comes when you begin to come out of the cave and suddenly you begin to notice that the light is beginning to shine. And you see these little pinpricks of light you're like, oh, it's changing. This is what we see in the picture of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are pretty desperate. The nation finds itself in a terrible state. They've completely messed up. They've turned their backs on God, and it feels incredibly dark. It's like they've gone right into the back of the cave, and it feels so desperate. But then what happens is, is you begin to move into the second half of the book, chapters 40 to 66. This is kind of a big division point. What happens is you move from this, this judgment into this incredible hope. And what we begin to see throughout this prophetic book is this picture of Jesus, the light of the world, framing front and center that they're talking about this Messiah that's going to come and he's going to rescue the world. And so that's what's happening in this book. We move from darkness into light. And so we're going to look at a passage that's famous, that's used at Christmas time, and it's Isaiah 9. So if you've got a Bible, do grab it. It's really helpful to look at it in, the, in your own Bibles, but if not, it's going to come up on the screens. It says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness. Again, this is the imagery of what I'm talking about. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. This is the bit suddenly that you'll go, oh, wow, I know this. For unto us a child is born. For some of you who like a bit of classical music that wake up with it, you're thinking about it. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, to set the context of this passage, Isaiah 9, 
we find it beginning in chapter 7 in the book of Isaiah, that Isaiah is just writing about the terrible leadership over the nation of Judah and the idolatry of all the people, that they've, st- they've started following other gods. And it's leading to this greater and greater desperation and more and more gloom and darkness of the land. It's an incredibly depressing picture. But in verse 2 of chapter 9, the ray of light that I talked about in potholing begins to shine. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The darkness cannot and will not win. Cannot win. One thing that we discover about God in the Bible, and if you don't know very much about God or that you're new to reading the Bible, there is one thing that you discover about God in the Bible, and we find it everywhere. Our God is a God who rescues. Throughout the scriptures, that is the picture that we have, God coming in to rescue his people. Whenever God sees somebody sitting in a dark place, whenever God finds people living in desperation and gloom, he devises a plan to rescue them. And there's this amazing passage in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians 2, and it says this, But God, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us. It's this picture of love throughout the pages of Scripture, this huge love that God has that would send a son to rescue us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, which is our sin and our mess and our gloom and our darkness. It is by grace that you have been saved. But God, because of the God of the Bible, the God whose son's birth we celebrate at Christmas, because God is a God who doesn't ever say to people, you made your bed in it, now lie in it. You made your bed, now lie in it. He never, ever says that. Or another way, you might put it like this. You knew what I wanted, but you didn't follow it. God never does that to us. He never leaves us in that place of desperation and gloom and hopelessness. There is this phrase, and I find it really helpful, and it's this phrase, it's called redemptive hope. Throughout the pages of Scripture, there is this hope that redeems, that no matter how deep it is, no matter how dark it is in our lives, that the Lord wants to break in. And he says, wherever you've got to in life, and this is the picture of the prodigal son, isn't it? Where the father outstretched, the prodigal son, he's gone off, he's squandered himself. He doesn't know what to do. And it's a picture of so many of us, we've gone off over here, but the father is waiting with outstretched arms. He's saying, come home. There is no, you cannot go too far for me. But God, it might look very dark, but God always gives a hope of rescue. We can always hope for the rescue of ourselves or somebody that we love. There is always this triumphant phrase, but God. Until we breathe our last breath, there is always held out for human beings an open invitation of grace. If you want to know one thing about God from the Bible, God is always at work devising a way to rescue people. Always. God saw the darkness again and again in Scripture. He devised rescue operations to pull people out of the darkness, and he hasn't changed. The culture that we are living in is broken. It's utterly messed up. I don't know about you. Sometimes I watch the news, and I'm like, man alive. It's broken. You could say there is a darkness over it, but God doesn't leave us there. Whatever disparate situation you're in, even situations of our own making, perhaps we've been stupid 
or we've done what we shouldn't have done, we've hooked our lives onto the wrong person, or we've become addicted, or we've rejected counsel from wise people. We sat down with some people, and we've asked them their opinion. We said, what should I do? And they said, whatever you do, don't do that. And you've gone and done it. Because we are a bit stupid sometimes, all of us. They're like, don't do it. And we're like, no, I think I know better. And we go and do it, and then we find ourselves in this desperate situation. We're like, how did I get there? And it's resulted in disaster. But one thing you must know and must believe about God is that God always has his hand out to us. He wants to rescue and he wants to bless. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God wants to rescue you? Always. And he wants to bless you? Always. Do you believe that God wants to rescue and bless people around the world who are seated in darkness? Do you believe that God is a rescuing God, a God committed to doing good? God is constantly strategizing, constantly scheming in his infinite wisdom, constantly figuring ways to get you and me and the rest of the world to turn fully back to him so that we can be healed and blessed. Just coming back into the passage, back into verse 1, because actually some, I don't know whether you read through it and you were like, oh, I'm not quite sure what's going on in these first five verses, five, and then suddenly you hit verse 6 and you're like, got it, know what's going on. I remember when I was looking, I was like, hmm. What exactly is going on here? It says this, Isaiah 9 verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Something very simple is going on here. It's talking about two things. It's talking about humbling and honoring. So Galilee was this place, and we might have them in Wales, where you talk, and I'm not going to use any names, but you think about somewhere, in Wales, and you think, do you know what? That is a place that is utterly downtrodden. That is a place that has no hope. Well, Galilee would have been that place. That would be how people talked about Galilee. They would say, there was no hope for this place. It had been humbled. It was the low of the low. And God says in this first verse, you know, these tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun, they lived there, but they'd been humbled. And then he says, but one day I'm going to honor this place. I'm going to honor it, and I'm going to lift it up. Do you know how God did this amazing job of honoring this place? We see this in Matthew 4, where this passage is quoted into the New Testament, and it's basically saying, because of Jesus. Jesus came from Galilee. It's prophesying what's to come. It's saying Jesus came from this place. Isn't that amazing that it's prophesied 600 years? God is saying, I am going to use this place, this kind of backwater, dead-end place, and I'm going to use it, and I'm going to honor it. Do you know how I'm going to do that? Because the Savior is going to come from there. So that's the first bit that we notice in that passage. It's amazing. And then we move into verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now notice the initiative again comes from God. People seated in darkness don't produce their own light. We don't produce our own light. They aren't responsible for the light. Instead, totally apart from us, totally apart from anything we do, light appears. Light is always a gift of God. This is why we come back to grace. There is nothing that we do to earn it. The light is a gift. For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. It is an utter gift that none of us can boast. None of us stand here looking down on anybody else. It is a complete gift. This light is a gift, and we cannot manufacture the light. We see it, and we respond to it. 
God shines light into the darkness. And then we move through the passage, and then God beats the odds. Remember what God has done. That's what verse 4 is all about. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. What is that talking about? This is referring back to the story of Gideon. That's what it's talking about. Midian's defeat is a reference to the Old Testament story of Gideon. The story of Gideon is the story of hope when the odds are overwhelmingly stacked against you. For those of you who don't know, what happens is Gideon's going out to fight and he summons this army and he asks all of these people to come and fight and he's got this good group and then God says, no, it's too many. I want to reduce that number. Gideon's like, really? And so he ends up with 300. And the way that the Lord does it is between whether they kind of... um, lap the water and they bring the water to their faces like that or whether they lap it. And so he ends up and God says, you only need 300. You only need 300. Why? Because I'm with you. I want to show you my power and I want to show you my might. When there is no human reason why you should win, there's absolutely no reason in the world why something should work out. God can beat the odds. That God can defeat your enemy no matter how big they are. God does work miracles, miracles of healing, miracles of rescue, miracles of restoration. If you want to regain hope and if you're in a dark place, start reading and meditating on this book. This whole book, the Bible, breathes with the message of hope. It says, remember what God has done. In fact, in Genesis, the story of Abraham is a story of hope for children when childbearing is medically impossible. The story of Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that's a story of hope for us when the family we grew up in is radically dysfunctional. When we're like, it's it's a complete mess. It's a story of hope. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, it doesn't matter what your family was like, how screwed up they were, there's hope for you. That's what the story is about. The story of Samson in the book of Judges is a story of hope when we've wasted our potential and we've become a tragedy. The story of the Apostle Peter in the New Testament is a story of hope when we've blown it and betrayed everything that we say that we believe. When Peter stood there, and he was like, Lord, I am never going to deny you. And then he ends up denying the Lord three times. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that is? To look back and be like, I am an utter failure. Can you imagine how Peter felt? He was like, I have, I'm never going to leave you. And then he denies the Lord three times. He would have been a broken man. And then the Lord goes on to build his church through Peter. He used, God uses the broken things of this world to restore. The story of Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, they are all female ancestors of Jesus Christ, prostitutes and adulteresses. Do you know what? It doesn't matter how bad your circumstances are, God's grace can triumph. The story of the resurrection is the ultimate story of hope. Here Jesus is mocked, he's stripped, he's beaten, spikes are driven into his hands and feet, he's gasping for air and a spear is thrust into his side. Here is Jesus dead, buried and after three days gloriously alive. The story of the resurrection is the story of hope even in the face of death. Death does not have the last word, God does. As we read the Bible, we allow the hope of scripture to fill our souls with joy. God can beat the odds. And then finally, God sends his son into the darkness. The passage, as I've said, explodes to life in verse 6. It goes like this. Remember, this is prophesied 600 years before. For to us a child is born, Jesus. 
To us, the Son has given Jesus. And the government will be on his shoulders, Jesus. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Jesus. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, Jesus. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Jesus. Jesus was in David's line. He's from the line of David. Sometimes when people are like, oh, do you know what? I don't believe the scriptures. I'm like, really? <laughs> this is remarkable that it would talk about this. That Jesus would come from Galilee. And that it would so amazingly talk about this man that we worship 600 years beforehand. It prophesied him. It said that he was going to come, that he was going to be the Messiah, that he was going to bring people out of darkness into the light. I don't know about you, but that is pretty convincing to me. And this isn't the only, and this is what's so amazing about Isaiah. This is not the only story. Again and again, you will see these pictures of Jesus throughout the book of Isaiah. And you will say, oh my goodness, that is the Savior that we see in the New Testament. He was foretold. It's one of these children's quizzes at church where the answer is always Jesus. In John 1 verse 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This means that the darkness or the evil has never and never will overcome or extinguish God's light. Do you know what? There are people all over the world sitting in darkness. Many of ourselves find ourselves in a place of darkness. But God in his infinite love and grace wants to bring light into our dark places. The miracle-working God that we serve wants to give hope for those who are in darkness. Our God grants astonishing wisdom, awesome revelation for any of you who seek him for light in your place of darkness. One of the songs that we sing is this, and it says, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. We sing about it, but there is incredible power in the name of Jesus. And if we're worried about the darkness, we have the answer. He is the light of the world. And he will shine into all the darkest places. And he wants to. Our God is a God of rescue. And he wants to break in, not only to the people outside of these walls, but also into our own hearts. And the offer is always there. Come to me. Come to me. Come and follow me. Leave your nets and follow me. Whatever it looks like today, leave these things behind and come and follow me. My invitation is always there. My grace is sufficient. Why don't we stand?